Amen. So good to see all of you here today, braving the snow, and we're just grateful that you're here. I'm sure that there are probably many who are watching online this morning, and we say welcome to you as well. Um, Matthew 27. We'll finish out 27 this morning, and then next Sunday... On the Sunday prior to Christmas, we'll study the resurrection. How about that? Uh, Easter at Christmas. And then if you want a Christmas message, come to one of our Christmas Eve services, and I'll give you the best I got, all right? So we're going to look at the kind of follow-up on the death and burial of Christ today, and then next week, the resurrection. You know, throughout Christ's ministry, throughout his life, really, Uh, Along the way, we see these divine declarations from God that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, that's the purpose of Matthew's writing is to show us, writing primarily to a Jewish audience, to tell them, to inform them that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so even at his birth, you remember that we study At this time of year, uh, there were divine declarations. There were the divine declaration that was made to the the shepherds um, and the angels that appeared to them and said, don't be afraid for today there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ Lord and and he'll be a Savior for the world and and tells them to go and find that baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. So, So there's that divine declaration from God to the shepherds. You remember the star in the east, uh, appearing to the Magi, telling them that, the, that Jesus, this one who has been born, is the Christ. At his baptism, you remember the baptism of Christ, the, the heavens open, uh, and God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. And so along the way, we have these markers. And even here, as Christ is obedient to the point of death, we have divine declarations from God that this man, Jesus, is not just a man. He is God. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your word this morning. And it's your word that we desire to hear today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us in the study of your word. We're asking, Lord, that you would teach us. You would instruct us by means of your living word. That, God, I don't know where every individual is at today, spiritually speaking. But you do. And I believe you have a word for them today no matter where they're at, no matter what they're experiencing. So, Holy Spirit, take this divine word of God, this inerrant word of God, and make it alive and fresh to every one of us that we might better understand who you are and how we relate to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three, at least three here, divine declarations from God. The first we see is that the veil in the temple is torn. So Christ dies, you see, kind of backing up in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The other gospel writers tell us that 
He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was a sudden death. These criminals could hang on the cross for days. It was a, a brutal death, but Passover is coming, and they can't have uh, these men on the cross when Passover arrives, and so they had to speed up the death process. And in order to do this, they would take what, a, what amounted to a baseball bat, and they would have used it to break the legs of these men just below the knee. But you'll remember that they break the legs of the first criminal and the second, and they come to Jesus, and they knew he was already dead because Christ uh, didn't die in the hands of men. He laid down his life. He, he um, gave his life of his own initiative. So he is dead, but you'll remember, and just to ensure that he is dead, they pierce him in the side, and blood and water flows. Christ dies. And in response to the death of Christ, the first thing that we see happen is the veil is torn In verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. This veil um, was huge. It was 90 foot tall, uh, 24 foot wide, and some estimate as much as four inches thick. It was said that it would take 200 men just to pull back that veil. And the purpose of this veil is that it was to separate men from God. It was to separate everyone. There were other barriers, other veils, but this veil that separated everyone from from the, the sacred place of God, from the holiness of God, that was its purpose. The message of that veil is you don't enter into God's presence. In fact, the the, the entire message of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the temple is that sinful men and women don't go into God's presence. He's too holy. We're uh, way too sinful. And so the message of that veil is a message uh, of separation. In fact, the Jewish mind, anybody entering into the presence of God was unthinkable uh, it, it, would, it would appear impossible. They wouldn't even imagine just a, a man or woman like you and me entering into God's presence. And on certain occasions, you'll remember the Old Testament, uh, people uh, tried to enter into God's presence unauthorized, and it didn't go so well for them. You'll remember King Uzziah. Uh, he's a good king, but he grows a little bit arrogant and prideful and thinks, I can just go into the temple. I can burn incense in the presence of God. And he goes in there, and what happens? God strikes him with leprosy, and he dies a leper. Um, uh, Nadab and Abihu, uh, they are the sons of Aaron. They get arrogant. We're we're the sons of Aaron. We can go before God. And and so they go before God and offer strange fire, and fire consumes them. And you'll remember Korah and all those that followed after him and his family. They got upset and said, why these Levites? Why can they go? Why can't we go? We should be able to be priests too. We, We should be able to go before the presence of God. And Moses says, well, we'll see about that. And, and the ground breaks forth and swallows all of them, which is a pretty good indicator you're not heading in the right direction, all right? That's not something you want to do. And the message of this is you don't enter into God's presence. Sinful men and women don't come into his presence. But now, as a direct result of the death of Christ, God takes this veil and tears it down. And it's clear that that it was said of this veil that two teams of oxen couldn't pull it apart, pull it in different directions. It's obvious that the only explanation for this temple being torn is that God does it. In fact, it's torn from top to bottom. If man had done it, it had been torn from bottom to top. But God initiates this, tears it from top to bottom, and now God says to sinful men and women like you and me, now you can come. You can come to me. There's grace. There's forgiveness. 
And, and the question that's got to be asked is what has changed? Why is it now all of a sudden that we can come before God? Certainly the holiness of God hasn't changed. God is eternally holy. What's changed? Well, you'll remember there was only one person who could go into the presence of God once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, he would uh, take the blood or he'd take an animal, a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and he'd pronounce the sins of the people upon that lamb, and then he would sacrifice it, and he would take his, the blood of that lamb into the Holy of Holies. And they would actually, they put bells on the high priest and they would tie a rope around his uh, ankle. And if the bell stopped ringing, they knew he died and nobody wanted to go in there and clean up the mess. And so they just pull him out by his ankle. Uh, but they, they sent him in once a year. He would go in there and uh, he would take the blood of that lamb. And you remember inside the Holy of Holies was what? It was the Ark of God. And inside the Ark of God was the law of God. And the law of God was constantly testifying before the presence of God that, that, that his law had been broken, that you and I are sinners. And what the, the priest would do is he'd take the blood of that unblemished lamb and he would sprinkle it on a place known as the mercy seat. Right above the ark was the mercy seat. He would sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the mercy seat. And now God, in a symbolic way, would look down and not see his broken law, but he would see in its place the blood of an unblemished lamb. And the payment had been made and the wrath of God had been satisfied. But that was just a symbol. They would do it over and over again. And Jesus is the fulfillment. He fulfills that symbol in his substance. Jesus is our mercy seat to a group of people who couldn't save themselves, who couldn't go into the presence of God on their own. God lovingly responds by sending his one and only son to die on a cross and to shed his blood so that now through his blood, the righteousness of Christ could be imputed to our account so that you and I as sinners who had broken God's law, God would look down upon us and not see sinners. He would see saints through the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so now you and I, the holiness of God hasn't changed. But you and I, through the blood of Christ, we have been changed. And now God says, come to me. There's grace and there is forgiveness. This is, honestly, it is beyond what we can comprehend. That God has taken everything that stood in the way of us coming to him and knowing him in a personal way, and he has thrown it away. And he's broken down every barrier and every wall of separation and says, come to me. The message of the veil was no one can come. The message of the torn veil is anyone can come so long as they come through the blood of Christ. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, black, white, Asian, African, Hispanic, Australian. It doesn't matter. Anybody can come. Amen. Jayhawk, tiger. Wildcat, Longhorn Sooner. What we like to say is even an Auburn fan can get in. <laughs> but they got to come so long as they come through what? Through the blood of Jesus. Isn't that a powerful picture? You know, it, it, the fearful thing for me is that, that, that God has broken down all the barriers. He's broken down all the walls of separations. But what I'm afraid is we become really good at constructing new barriers. 
And we got to be really, really careful because I think a lot of times if we're not careful, the message we send is that, you know, the, the Judaizers in the New Testament would tell uh, the Gentiles, you can come to faith in Christ, but you got to become Jewish. Too. you got to go practice all these Jewish laws and the, 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 the dietary codes. you got to do all this stuff. And what they were saying is you need Jesus plus the law. And Paul says, no, it's Jesus alone. And I'm afraid that sometimes we're guilty of the same things when we tell somebody you can come to Jesus, but you got to dress like us. And you got to talk like us. And you got to sing the songs we sing. You got to kind of go through our programs. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be honest with people about the changes that Christ will make in their life, but we need to be careful that we're not telling a person, you got to change first and then you come to Jesus. No, we tell them, go to Jesus and let Jesus change them from the inside out. Amen? We got to be careful that we're not constructing new barriers that God has broken down in his son Jesus. Now, the greatest barrier that we create from, to, to keep people from coming to know God is when we go silent. Every time that God opens an opportunity for us to tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ and we get what I like to call paralysis of the tongue, what we have done is we've put up a new barrier from somebody coming into the presence and fellowship of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That we've been reconciled, haven't we? We were enemies, now we become friends. And what we get the privilege to do as representatives, as if we're ambassadors for Christ, is what it says. We go out into the world and we tell people, we, we have fellowship with God, and you can too, through Jesus Christ. So we got to be careful we're not constructing new barriers when God has broken them all down in Jesus so the veil is torn from top to bottom. Not only was the veil torn from top to bottom, but we see here that the earth quaked, the earth shook, and the rocks split. So the, the veil splits, the earth shakes. What we see here is that the effects of Christ's death are so profound. It doesn't just affect the spiritual realm, but Christ's death actually impacts the physical world. See, when, when something starts shaking, what does that mean? It means it's about to collapse. And what God is communicating through this earthquake, through this shaking and these splitting rocks is that these things that you regard as firm and unshakable, they're not that stable. They're not final. They are temporary. Folks, this world, we, we, we steward it as best we can, but we also know one day God will speak and this whole earth is coming down. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That this world is temporary. It is fading away. That creation longs and groans for its redemption. So we see here that what, what God is communicating in the death of Christ is that this Old, temp, Old Testament temple and sacrificial system is obsolete now. He's taken that veil and go, and he throws it to the side. And what he's saying is this world, it's the beginning of the end. It's fading away. And you know what else God communicates? Death is dying. Because the third divine declaration is that the tombs are opened. Look at what it says in verse 52. It says, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. The tombs are opened. And it says the bodies of the saints were raised. These are Old Testament saints 
who believed in the Christ that would come. You and I believe in a Christ who has come. They believed in a Christ who would come. As one person has said, they were saved on credit that came due at the cross. They have trusted in a Christ who would come, and now in a vindication of their faith in the coming Messiah, in a validation that Jesus is that Messiah, these individuals, some, are raised up out of their tombs, and they go into the city. Can you imagine being at home one afternoon and having a meal and saying, Uncle Billy, where have you been, brother? I mean, that'd be a strange moment, wouldn't it? But it's a foretaste, folks. I love what Matthew does here. He tells us not just that the saints were raised, but he tells us the bodies. He's saying that these individuals were bodily and physically resurrected, and they are a preview. They're a sneak preview. They're a trailer. They're a foretaste of the full and final resurrection of the saints that will occur when Christ returns And we get a little glimpse of it right here at the death of Jesus. And I love what Matthew does here. He takes the hope, the hope of our bodily physical resurrection, and he connects it to the death of Christ. Oftentimes when we talk about a physical resurrection, we tie it to what? We tie it to the resurrection, don't we? Matthew ties it here to the death of Christ. And this is important. The primary basis of our hope in a bodily, physical resurrection is the death of Christ because the death of Christ removes the greatest obstacle to our bodily resurrection, which is what? Our sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality that I can't go to God in this body as it is today because it's sinful flesh. Something's gotta happen. Sin must be removed and now through, the, through Christ and his shed blood, now we have a hope of a bodily resurrection. Isn't that amazing? So these Old Testament saints are, are raised up as an indication that, that Christ is the Messiah. So what do we see here? We see these three divine declarations. One, that Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament temple is fading, this world is fading, and death has lost its grip. And then we see four human responses. Look at verses 54 through 61. First, we're going to see the testimony of an outsider. Look at verse 54. Now, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became frightened and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, these were probably some very hard men. They probably witnessed hundreds of executions. These were professional executioners. And no group of people had a closer view of the death of Christ than these men. They've got a front row seat to the death of Christ. And what have they experienced? It says after they, after they, what they saw, then they declared. What have they seen? They've seen the way Christ died. That he died a sudden death, but he also died triumphantly. He died in faith. They'd never seen anybody die like that. And then they, they see the darkness fall, and they felt the earthquake, and now they've seen these individuals come out of the tomb. And in light of what they've witnessed, they declare, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, now listen, the religious leaders have said what? That... that He claims to be God, but he's not. In other words, the religious leader said he's an imposter. He's he's not God. He claims to be. He's a blasphemer. Don't believe him. But these guys say, 
We don't agree with the religious leaders. In light of what we have seen, in light of what we've witnessed, our observation, our verdict, our conclusion is this man was a son of God. Now, this is powerful because these are outsiders. These are not people of the Jewish faith. What they're saying is we, we don't know about the Jewish faith, but we do know death, and we do know deceitful men, and we've seen a lot of criminals, and our verdict is that this man was a son of God. Now, I don't know. The more I study this, I'm not sure that these guys came to faith in Christ. Quite frankly, I don't even know that they fully grasp what they've just said. My prayer is that when it gets to Acts chapter 2, they're part of the 3,000 that, that fully grasp it and they come to faith in Christ. But what I do know is right here, you got some really good testimony from some up-close personal witnesses who understood death and dying, and their only explanation for how this man died is that he's God. And if you're a skeptic of Christianity, those are the kind of witnesses that I would want to listen to. What do they say? They say he's God. Well, then what do we see? We see the faithfulness of ministering women. Look at verses 55 and 56. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. I can only imagine how grieved these women must have been. They, obviously, they loved Christ. They owed their life to him. When you understand, we don't have time this morning, but look at each of these individual women. When you understand who they are, they owe their life to this man, Jesus. And they've stayed faithful. They've seen his suffering. They've, they've witnessed his crucifixion, his death. Um, and Matthew's quick to point out that they, they just haven't shown up right here, that they've followed Jesus from Galilee. In other words, they have played a strategic role in Christ's ministry. And I think if we're not careful, we'll, we'll begin to look at Jesus' followers as kind of this self-contained group of 12 men that we start to look, look at it just as an all-male group, as a men's ministry, if you will. And that would not be a biblical picture. We see here, according to Matthew and the other gospel writers, that there was this strong group of women who supported Christ, and they are faithful to the end. The disciples aren't there, but these women are there. And not only are they there, they're the primary witnesses to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is important for a lot of reasons, but primarily think about this. The testimony of a woman in that day carried no legal weight. So if you're going to make up a religion... If you're going to make up a gospel account and seek to make it believable for people, your number one rule is don't make women your primary witnesses. Make men your primary witnesses. But don't you love this about God? He said, no. No, in my sovereignty, in my wisdom, in my economy, we're going to make the women the primary witnesses of my death, burial, and the primary proclaimers of my resurrection. You know, the Bible demonstrates there's so many people that it frustrates me that would say that Christianity diminishes the significance of women. Well, they gotta be reading a different Bible than I'm reading. Because you can't help but if you read the scripture to see that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, over and over again, it's demonstrating in God's salvation history the huge and eternal significance 
role that women play, the ministry of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, the book of Acts, Acts chapter one, they're gonna be there as the, as the disciples gather to pray, as the church is born all throughout the book of Acts. They'll play a significant role in the development of the church. And in Paul's epistles, uh, you can't help but see uh, the significant role that women played in the development and the planting of all these churches. And, and, and we, we affirm this while, while also affirming that this does not free a woman up to serve in the role of pastor or elder or, or, or a role that's assigned to men. That, that would be a violation of God's word. But what this text affirms, what scripture affirms, is that a woman does not need to assume the role of a man to have huge, eternal, vital significance in the world, in the church, and in the home. And we must affirm this significance while at the same time not blurring the lines between uh, the distinctiveness of a godly man and a godly woman. That would diminish the beauty and the, the perfection and the distinctiveness of gender that God has written into the heart of every individual that he has made. And that's what our culture wants to do. They want to just blur the lines. But we must stand on the word of God and recognize that the work of Christ, the work of the New Testament church, in many ways would have been impossible apart from the work, the support, the partnership, the prayers, the ministries, and the activities of this vast company of women. And even today, the, the, the work of Christ, the, the, the history of church, even today in Lenexa Baptist Church, what we do would not be possible apart from the significant work of vital women who love Christ and faithfully serve him here. And we got to affirm that. You know, I, yesterday I went to visit um, Betty Nolting, and many of you know Betty, many of you may not know Betty, but her and her husband were founding members of Lenexa Baptist Church. And yesterday I had opportunity to thank Betty again, because to a large extent, we would not be here today if it weren't for the faithful service and the love of Christ that could be found in this woman named Betty Nolte. You know, they just did Person of the Year, Time Magazine. I would have voted Betty Nolte. And so here, I love this about God's Word. Matthew chooses to highlight God and his sovereignty here at the death of Christ chooses to highlight these faithful women. They are significant in my economy and they're vitally important to my work. Well, then we see some closet Christians who are going to go public. Look at verses 57 through 60. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new, t new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. So here we see Joseph of Arimathea. And John tells us that there's another individual here. Who's that other individual? Anybody know? Nicodemus. And here's these two men, and Scripture tells us that they were, they were believers, but they hadn't gone public. They were incognito. 
There was too much on the line. They knew if we go public, that's it for us. Our careers are over. Our lives are over. But I think what happens here in light of what Christ has done, I think they see this man die, and I think they realize he's not dying for his sins. He's dying for ours, much like that criminal knew. And I think in that moment, you know what I think? I think they were ashamed. This man gave everything for us. And we've been too scared to go public for him. And I think Joseph looked at Nicodemus and said, I got a tomb. And Nicodemus said, I got some spices. Let's go take care of this man we owe everything to. And and make no mistake about it, they knew what this meant. By going public, by asking for the body of Jesus, they knew their careers were over. They were now becoming marked men. They were going to be, if they go public in this way, they are going to be crucified with Christ. This is them taking up their cross, denying themselves, and following Jesus. And so they lay their lives down in light of what he's done and say, we don't care who knows or what the world thinks or what they do to us, but we love this man. And Joseph of Arimathea goes and gets that body. Can you picture this? He has to go and take the body of Jesus. So somehow he's got to get up there and take the hands of Christ into his hands. And he lays that body over his body. And that bloodied body of Jesus now covers his life. But isn't that a picture of salvation? That our lives are now hid in Christ and the blood of Christ covers our sin? That's the message of Joseph of Arimathea. I have trusted in Christ. His blood covers my sin and I don't care who knows. And let me tell you today, if you fully grasp what Christ has done for you on the cross, you cannot go quiet. You can't go incognito. You must go public. We're in that political season when all these politicians, they'll be asked about their faith and they love the cop-out answer. Well, my faith is private. Listen to me. If you're placing your faith in Jesus, there's nothing private about that. It may be personal, but it's not private. You can't trust in Christ and then seek to hide the light of Christ that he's lit up in your life. And that's the picture of Joseph and Nicodemus. And by the way, Isaiah 53 said his grave was assigned with wicked men, but he was with a rich man in his death. Isn't that powerful? Men said he's just nothing but an ordinary man. We're going to throw him in a common grave. And God says, not so fast, my friend. That's my son. And he works in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea. Then finally we see wicked men try to stamp out Christianity. Look at verses 62 through 66. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So these guys, these Pharisees, they go to Pilate and they say, we need to seal up this tomb. We need to make it, uh, we need to make it secure. 
Their fear is that the disciples are going to come and steal the body away and claim that he's been resurrected. What's funny to me about that is they've given the disciples a lot more credit than they deserve, haven't they? Because quite frankly, the disciples are not concerned with the body of Jesus. They're concerned with their own bodies and staying alive. But they say, we need to make this secure. I I think here, this is just my speculation, but the Pharisees, you'll remember, unlike the Sadducees, they believed in a resurrection, didn't they? I think in my mind, these Pharisees are wondering, there's a chance he just might be resurrected. And you know what? A guy who claims to be Christ is one thing, but a guy who claims to be Christ and is raised from the dead, that's a totally different deal. And so they work with Pilate to make the grave secure. Pilate says, you you have a guard, make it secure as you know how. Most believe this was somewhere between 12 and 60 men. Can you believe that? 12 uh, 12 to 60 men to guard the tomb of a dead man that they claim to be nothing more than some insane carpenter from Nazareth. It's absurd. And they take and they, they put the seal of Rome. It was essentially there, a cord and the wax insignia of Rome. And they put that there to make sure that nobody tampers with it. If somebody tampers with it, we'll know about it. They're there to seal up this dead man in a tomb. But what do we know? He's no ordinary man. And it wouldn't matter if you put a million men in front of that tomb. They weren't going to hold him because death had no claim on him. I mean, when you think about, quite honestly, isn't it just funny? (laughs) It's ridiculous. You guys think you're going to seal up the king of kings and the lord of lords in some tomb? It's like trying to contain a grizzly bear in a cardboard box. Death has no claim on him. And what's going to happen? Got to come back next week. (laughs) Or you can just read ahead. But do you see what we've seen here? Jesus is the Christ. All throughout Matthew's gospel, in his preaching, in his presentation, in his birth, in, in his temptation, in his baptism, in his parables, in the power of his miracles, and, and in his triumphal entry, and, and now even in his death. Every step of the way, there has been a divine declaration from God that he is not a man, he is the Son of God, he is Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our only hope of salvation. That's the evidence, that's the testimony of God's Word. And some of you, maybe you've never even considered the evidence. But wherever you're at, at some point or another, you've got to decide, what am I going to do with Jesus? But there's no mistake about the testimony of God's word. God's word says, he is the Messiah. God's word says that he's the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God's word says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word that powerfully declares, convincingly declares that Jesus is the Christ.
And so, God, I pray that if there's somebody here that's been contemplating Jesus, maybe they've been seeking to know more about Christ. God, I pray that supernaturally by your spirit, you would pull back the blinders so that they could see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world. He's the only hope of salvation. Lord, I pray today that they would understand the depth of their sin. I pray that they'd see the beauty of Christ and they'd trust in him as the sole means of salvation. God, for those of us that do know you, wherever we're at today, Lord, I pray that in light of what Christ has done, we would commit ourselves again to you in going public in our identification with Jesus. That just as he went public for us, we would go public for him and we would tell a lost and dying world that now there's a way to Christ. There's peace, there's grace, and there's forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus. I pray that we would be ambassadors of Christ, participating in a ministry of reconciliation for the glory of Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.